Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Anyway, so we've been spending some time as we go through Lent, uh, tracking through really the last week of the life of Jesus. We've looked at uh, His trials, we looked at His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a number of those, his last supper, those important moments. But this is a Sunday traditionally where Christians all over the world celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, which happened before those things. So what we're going to do, and the reason the reason we did this series the way we did was I just, so often uh, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, there's just so much content. There is so much amazing stuff in the life of Jesus, and you just can't process it in a week. So leading up to Palm Sunday, we did the middle of the story. And so now on Palm Sunday, we're going to just sort of do a little bit of a flashback, just like a movie, flashback to the Palm Sunday story uh, before um, the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus' arrest and trials and all of that, and just look at this major event that actually precipitated some of this, that actually caused some of it to happen, where Jesus set a ball rolling, set something in motion. Um, I want to just look at the background of the story for a second. You'll see a map on your screen um, in just a moment. And what you'll see there is uh, the city of Jerusalem. Um, and that's where, um, of course, all of the major stories of, of this last week happen. Uh, Jesus has just been preaching in uh, Jericho. He's just done a, uh, a number of messages. Uh, he's done a remarkable healing with a blind man, a man named Bartimaeus has just been healed, and all of a sudden they decide, okay, let's go uh, towards Jerusalem. It says Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and we, with hindsight, know he's setting his face towards the cross, and he begins to walk from Jericho, arrives sometime uh, midday in Bethany. We're not sure about the time of that, uh, but he's come actually to the house of Mary and Martha, um, who are uh, the sisters of Lazarus. And you know, from earlier in the story, Jesus just raised this man Lazarus uh, from the grave. And so uh, they're really excited uh, to have Jesus come and stay with them. It says in the book of John that Jesus stayed with them for about six days. That week, Holy Week, he was actually residing in Bethany at uh, Mary and Martha's house, going into the city, doing num- a number of things, and coming back, but coming out of the city to stay, uh, to get out a little bit away from the crowds and all that, even though the crowds would kind of follow him out there. Uh, but he was uh, spending that time uh, hanging out. If you want to just look at the next slide, we can just get a little sense of the timeline. Uh, Jesus arrives at Bethany um, on what we think would be uh, the ninth day of Nisan. Uh, not not uh, your uh, automaker, uh, but that's a, a month in the Jewish calendar. Uh, we know that because in the book of John, it says that uh, Jesus spent six days there. And we know that uh, that's the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, which happened on the Friday, happened on the same day as when Passover was. And Passover often happened on the 14th of Nisan. Um, that's when they began slaughtering sheep in the morning. And then by the evening, once it was dark, they would begin to consume that meal and, and have all of that. And so that time frame uh, is likely a Sunday arrival um, at uh, 
or sorry, a Saturday arrival at Bethany, and then Sunday, um, some scholars would believe it would be Monday, we have the uh, triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus walks through the rest of the week, uh, and the stories like in Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, uh, we see immediately after uh, Jesus arrives in, in Jerusalem with the uh, triumphal entry, immediately after that, we see that he cleanses the temple. Uh, we think that's happening on the same day, if you read those uh, texts in Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, uh, but really it actually happened the next day, that's a detail that we get from uh, the book of Mark. And then Thursday, we have the Last Supper. We have Gethsemane. He gets arrested. The trials begin Friday morning all the way through the night and into the morning. He's tried at three at 9 a.m., the third hour after sunrise, Jesus is crucified. Incidentally, that 3 a.m. is the same time which they begin slaughtering sheep uh, for the Passover. It's about to happen. Jesus is literally crucified in the same moment the priests begin to slaughter sheep for the Passover. And by 3 p.m. he dies, and it's on to Sunday. And we see the resurrection. Uh, that's the timeline. Uh, they, there can be variations in the way scholars look at it, but basically that's what we see it. I.H. Marshall's a well-respected uh, New Testament scholar, and I'm just going to follow him on that. Um, but the reality is, is that Jesus has arrived in Bethany. Uh, he knows what's coming. He knows what's about to happen to him. Uh, in his life. He knows that he's about to go to the cross. And uh, he, he's, he's got to somehow um, fulfill the prophecies that are spoken about him. Uh, he wants uh, Israel to know that he's king. He wants Israel to know who he is. He wants them to understand who he is. And so we pick up the story here um, in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 1. We're just choosing Mark for this because it's the earliest account. The other gospels add some detail to the story of, of the triumphal entry. We're going to just sort of port those details in, but we're going to just follow through with Mark, which is sort of the simplest and first account, and just add a little bit as we go. But let's just read Mark chapter 11, uh, 1 to 11 first. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. That would be Bethphage, if you remember from the map. Go into the village in front of you. Um, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt. Tied on, sorry, a colt. Um, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. And they went and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
So we see uh, in the gospel uh, of Mark this uh, strange story, and we see it in the other gospels as well, uh, reflections of it, uh, the story of Jesus uh, getting a colt for himself. He's got to get a ride into town. Now, Jesus normally didn't have a ride. He didn't, it's not a procession like a Pope mobile. This is not like the uh, uh, going into a town in a convertible. Uh, Jesus has got to enter in uh, somehow. Um, he knows that there's something prophetic to be fulfilled. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but what's really interesting about this story is that it has a reflection in it of something that we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, very often, um, when uh, a prophet was being validated in their ministry or a king was being validated, you would see prophetic signs around uh, the actions uh, of that person. What we see here is this really strange story of Jesus predicting uh, what was going to happen to the disciples as they were about to go and get the horse. Now, we know that that's Bethphage is further ahead on the journey. Jesus uh, hasn't been there yet. He hasn't had time to arrange this. What Mark is trying to do is to signify for us is that Jesus was doing something prophetically. He had foreknowledge. He knew what was going to happen. He knew there was going to be a cult. He knew it was going to be tied there. He knew what the people would say when the disciples went to untie it. And he knew what to tell the disciples to say to make it okay. And uh, we, we need to, I, I think a, a number of different scholars just sort of look at this and say this, this little piece of the story is a little bit strange, it's a little bit odd, what's it doing here? And uh, we see a similar story in Mark 14 when Jesus is about to prepare the arrangements for the Passover supper. He says, uh, there's going to be a person carrying water, go follow them and ask them if the place will be prepared. And of course the place is prepared, it's another sort of prophetic prediction deal. But it reflects something that we see in 1 Samuel uh, 10, 13, and this is what scholars hang, 10, 3, and this is what scholars hang their hats on. Um, and this is just after Saul has been anointed, anointed as king. Saul was the first king of Israel, incidentally, uh, the first king of Israel, and uh, has just been anointed as king. And so as a sign to Saul, and as a sign to the people, that uh, Saul was supposed supposed to be king. Uh, Samuel says to him, and this shall be a sign to you. When you depart from me today, you will meet uh, two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zela, and they will say to you, the donkeys that went to seek you, or, the, or sorry, that you went to seek are found. And then just a few verses later, he says, and you're also going to see three men going up to God at Bethel. They'll meet you there. One is carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So again, another story, uh, two stories, which is very specific predictions, so that the person and the people around Saul will know that there's a prophetic anointing on this. So they'll know that this is something that God has ordained, that God has seen this ahead of time, uh, that this is something that is, uh, is a, a, not just a natural thing, that this is a spiritual thing. And so I think what Mark is trying to do here and what Luke and Matthew are trying to do as well is they're trying to say that this anointing of Jesus as king is a prophetic anointing. This anointing of Jesus as king is something that is not just uh, something that he kind of made happen by arranging all of the details in the background. The communication about how this was to happen, how we're going to get the donkey, how we're going to prepare the upper room, that communication was between Jesus and God and God and the people. God is the intermediary in this. This is something that God has done. This is something that God has made happen. And it's just so interesting that Jesus is anointed uh, to be celebrated as king in this moment, Israel's last true king, a king who will perfectly fulfill what it is to be kingship for Israel. 
and it's done uh, in contrast to the way that Saul, who was an utter failure as a king, uh, was anointed for his kingship. We see the redemption of kingship of Israel uh, in this moment. Um, so that's the first thing we see. Uh, the second thing we see that I think that we can just take out of this little piece of the text is this idea that uh, when Jesus uh, sends the disciples, you know, they're going to say, what are you doing with this donkey? Tell them the Lord has need of it. There's just a, a little, again, speaking to the lordship and authority of Jesus in that, isn't there? Doesn't Jesus' lordship trump our ownership? Doesn't Jesus' lordship uh, trump our ownership of anything we have? And it's just a little side note to us. Jesus really can command from us anything that he wants. Because he's Lord, he's Savior. He can command any of our resources. He can command any of our money. He can command any of our assets and say, hey, I'm going to take this and I'm going to use this for my kingdom and my glory. So we hold all things lightly. But the thing that I think is um, really most powerful, and again, this is a, a number of commentators sort of focus on this moment in the story. What they want us to know here is that what's about to happen, Jesus' crucifixion and his death, he, he's not some hapless victim here. He, he, he's not just a victim of circumstances. This is not an accident Jesus is absolutely setting this up. He is absolutely in command. He is absolutely in control. Your salvation did not come about by an accident. Your salvation did not come about uh, just by the madness of a crowd who eventually yells, crucify him. Your salvation came about because Jesus saw you. He saw humanity. He saw it and with intention took steps to bring about your salvation because he loves you. Because he loves you. You are not an accident. You are not the result of political machinations that went wrong and that went weird and that somehow later got reinterpreted. Your salvation was worked out by the intention and the will of a loving Savior. And Jesus knew this. In Mark 10, 32, the chapter before this, he, he knew exactly what was going to happen. As he says this, as they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. He knew exactly what was ahead of him. And he walked into it willingly and knowingly because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he knew you needed it. William Lane Craig says it like this. He says, Jesus sets a ball rolling that he knows will crush him under its weight. He's engineering an arrival. And when we get on to verse 17, uh, they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut down from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is in Bethany. He has gone through Bethphage. There's some debate about where Bethphage is geographically. Uh, He comes riding the colt uh, down the valley. The crowds have come out to meet him. Uh, Wherever Jesus was, they found out he was somewhere. They found out he was in Bethany. People would flock out from the city. They would come from the suburbs. Uh, So there was a crowd already building around the place where he was staying. Uh, He begins to walk down on the colt, down this tricky, winding path down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley, uh, this stinky, dirty stream that was really full of sewage and refuse and waste. And he walks down through that and eventually goes up uh, into the city. And as he does it, uh, riding on horseback, uh, he's echoing something that's happened in the past. In 63 uh, BC, Pompey uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem. In 63 AD, uh, the Romans had got fed up with this uppity little kingdom on the borders of their empire, and they set a a great army uh, around it. They besieged it, and when everybody got tired and worn, the walls were great, the walls were strong. Eventually, uh, a tower fell, and eventually Pompey uh, got soldiers into the city, uh, eventually sacked it and weakened it enough that he was able to go riding on a horse, Uh, through the Golden Gate, into the temple, and literally he rode into the temple, rode into the Holy of Holies. This is recorded in Josephus, and essentially desecrated that place, that Holy of Holies, and then walked out and left the left the temple. And from that time on, uh, the land of Israel was under uh, Roman rule, under the Roman boot, under Roman oppression, under Roman taxes, uh, occupied by Roman soldiers, uh, ruled by a puppet king in the Herods. Puppet kings who were just the tools of the Romans, just installed by them, corrupt and wicked, uh, ruling over the people. And the people lived under that oppression lived under that darkness. And then Jesus comes in, uh, reflecting something that we see in the Old Testament, this riding in on the donkey. We'll talk about Isaiah, or sorry, uh, Zechariah chapter 9 in a few moments. But Jesus comes in in the same way that Pompey did. But now a righteous king, now a king acclaimed by the people, a king not hated by the people, a king where the people gathered around him were shouting Hosanna. They knew of the healings. They knew of the miracles. This was a different kind of entry, a different kind of welcoming, and an entry that was happening on the back of a colt. Uh, People were searching uh, for the scriptures in that time. They were anxious for Messiahs to come. There had been a number of Messiahs over the years, people that had been self-proclaimed saviors of the land of Israel uh, who were all ultimately shut down and killed and murdered and and had their Messiahship fizzle and and go and turn out to be nothing. Um, But here's Jesus riding in on a colt. He's fulfilled a number of the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly. John picks this up in his account. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule, uh, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so in the middle of this fever pitch of excitement about this coming Messiah, Uh, Jesus is riding down the hill on a colt. Uh, People are taking their cloaks off. They're laying them down in the river Kidron so that his colt doesn't get refuse on its feet. Uh, They're they're waving palm branches. They're placing them down to make a road that is clean and pure and smooth before him. This is a delighted welcoming into the city. They're shouting. They're celebrating. They vandalized the local trees to do it. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, teacher, like, like you've got to make this stop. This is, this is unrest. This, is, this isn't good. Uh, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I, I tell you, if these uh, were silent, the stones themselves would cry out. So this is a moment of prophetic awareness. This is a moment where people are seeing Jesus almost rightly. They're seeing He's a king, their their celebration. It's like if creation, uh, creation is longing to welcome him into the city. And if the people don't do it, if the people don't reflect the welcome of creation of its king, then the creation will do it for itself. The stones will speak. The stones will talk. And people's expectation in this moment is that Jesus will probably enter the temple. He'll unite the Jewish leadership somehow. Uh, He will uh, take hold of the temple guard. He'll begin to command them. Uh, He will uh, take hold of the leadership apparatus. From the temple guard, he'll go to the temple of the Herod, or he'll go to the castle of Herod. He will take command of their guard, kick out that uh, puppet king. He'll take command of Herod's guard. And from there, they will take the Romans. Jesus will lay out his battle plan. He'll lay out his plan for political and military conquest. And Rome will be kicked out of the land. And Jerusalem will once again become uh, the city that is the fairest of all. With its shining temple in the middle, it will become the center of the world. Jerusalem will be a city on a hill for all to see. That's what the expectation is in that moment. And Jesus comes into the temple courts. And it says this in John 11, 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All the triumph, all the pomp, all the palm branches, all the cloaks, all the crowd following, all of the shouting, all the prophetic significance, and Jesus does nothing. Nothing. And just days later, they're yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. He doesn't get into that space and begin to preach down Caesar. He doesn't get into that space and, and take over the Jewish leadership. In fact, in verse or in chapter 12, the next chapter, that's where he's back in the city doing a little bit more teaching. That's where he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's.
He's not doing the thing that they expected him to do. He's not doing the thing that they wanted him to do. He's not taking control. He's not marshalling the guards. He's not taking over Herod's palace. What's going on here? We have a little more detail uh, in the book of Luke. And I think maybe the next image we'll see is an image of the gate that Jesus entered. You know, as Jesus is coming up to the gate and as the crowds are shouting, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. We have this strange, strange thing in Luke's account. It says this in verse 41 of chapter 19, the book of Luke. And when he drew near and saw the city, you can imagine him just riding up uh, to those stones and seeing those gates. Just we can look at that image again just for a second, just to chase a rabbit. Uh, those gates are the gates that Jesus entered in in the Middle Ages. They were, uh, they were actually bricked up uh, because nobody wanted Jesus to enter again. But at one time, those were glorious and beautiful gates that Jesus went in. And you can imagine him going up there and seeing those stones. They would have been well-dressed and well-tended at the time. They wouldn't have had vines growing in them. There wouldn't be rubble at the bottom. This would be a major thoroughfare. And as he goes up, as he drawn near the city, it says this, very strange, as everybody is shouting Hosanna, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is foretelling the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. So here Jesus is in the midst of a crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he falls to tears as he approaches the city, weeping and saying, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Oh, that you had known in this moment what would give you peace. The expectation of the crowds for a political conquest, that that would be the thing that would bring them peace. The expectation of the crowd that they were being visited by a Messiah who would be a military leader. And not seeing that they were being visited by God, very God, creator of the universe, the one who holds it all in the palm of his hands and spoke it into existence with the word. They saw a reflection of King David, which Jesus fulfilled perfectly and prophetically, but they did not see beyond that to see their maker. They missed him. And they missed his strategy. And they missed his purpose. Colossians 1, 19-20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
they did not see the fullness of God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, not by conquest, but by making peace by the blood of his cross. How often do we simply not know the Jesus who's coming into our lives? How often do we simply not recognize how he's coming and who he is? It would be great to have good policy, good leadership, good government. It would be brilliant uh, to see those things. In fact, we fight for these things. On the Christian right, we fight for government. We want to see it be more moral. We want it to be more strong. We want it to be, be more righteous. We want it to be more right uh, on the Christian and, and otherwise. On the left, we fight for government that is more just, that is more kind, that is better to the poor, that is better to the environment. We, we want to see uh, somebody pulling those levers of power to make the world somehow what we want it to be. And Jesus rides into the middle of it, rides into the middle of it, rides between uh, the conservative right and the liberal left, and he says, well, somebody please just listen to me and let me do it my way. This is to be done through the cross. This is to be done through the transformation of hearts. This is to be done through repentance. And this is to be done through my presence. Will the church be Christian again? Will we be evangelists again? Will we be prayer warriors again? Will we recover our calling to be the people of God? Walking in the way of Jesus. Walking the way of the cross. Walking the way of prayer. Kneeling the way of prayer. Will we recognize his strategy? His strange, unusual strategy. Will we see that that is the only thing that will ultimately give us peace. It would be good to have good policy. It would be good to have good government. And some of us may have a vocation to work on those things. But the only way that we will find lasting peace is if we tell our friends about the cross. Is if we tell our friends about Jesus. The only way we'll have lasting peace is by investing ourselves in the place of his presence, in the place of worship, in the place of prayer, in his presence expressed in the world through the church. That's how we get lasting change. And personally, 
personally. The change that we need to see, uh, struggles with our addictions, struggles with our pain, struggle with, with our grief. Are we going to keep looking uh, to yoga classes and essential oils and yoga pants and Enneagram? Those are all good things. We can maybe learn something from those things. But will we find our way to the cross? Will we find our way to the cross? We seek strength and healing through men and women. But will we find ourselves on our knees in prayer? Will we find our way to the presence? That's a triumphal entry. Is, is Jesus enough? Is the cross enough? Will that, will that work? <laughs> it will. It'll work. It's his strategy. It's his plan. His plan is for our nation uh, to come to repentance. And the only way our nation can come to repentance is if we come to know Jesus. We can't move political levers of power to get things the way we want. We have to have a grassroots revival, a grassroots movement of repentance. A grassroots movement of salvation in our nation. And that will only happen if it starts with us. Will we become evangelists again? Will we become repentant again? Will we follow Jesus in the way of Jesus? Will we do and facilitate his triumphal entry his way? That's the question for us. His triumphal entry into our culture and his triumphal entry into our own lives. Worship team, you guys can come ahead. We're going to just uh, sing a song that's just going to ask that question and answer that question for us. Is uh, the cross enough? Is Jesus enough? And it is. If you're in that place where you need to um, refocus, recenter your life on Jesus, would you just open your heart and turn towards him? Maybe you're uh, listening online or maybe you're here and you've never accepted Jesus into your heart. You've never accepted him into your life. You've never welcomed him into the city of your soul. You just welcome him. Knowing who he is, will you say, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.